Well, the sermon you've all been waiting for, The Biblical Wife, Part 2, especially all you men. <laughs> really, Pastor? Yes, yes, really. Had the privilege this week of taking a little road trip, and on my way, I, I like to take advantage of that time, some for just quiet, it's underrated, <laughs> and others to listen to how other people preach and teach and one of the guys I like to listen to from time to time is Mark Dever, pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Preaches 50-minute, 60-minute sermons. I'm a preacher, and I have a hard time paying attention that long. One thing I, I always am convicted about or convinced of when I listen to Mark Dever, though, is how plain his preaching seems. If you've ever listened to him, you know there's really not a lot of humor, not a lot of dynamic stories, not a lot of emotion. He'll never be one to try to evoke emotion, but just how straightforward he is in describing and explaining what the Bible says. You know why he's like that? Because he believes that it is the Bible's truth that changes people, not the preacher. Preacher is important because somebody's got to speak but it is the truth of the Bible that transforms our hearts. And that's my hope as well. Even as we tackle subjects like this where some of you are saying, I don't know that this applies to me. I think it does. I believe it will. At the end of John's Gospel, he records an interesting transaction between the risen Christ and Peter, who has, for lack of a better term, just been reinstated to ministry by Jesus. You might remember that Peter denied Jesus and then thought himself disqualified. But Jesus goes to Peter, and he reinstates him in ministry. And he gives him this commission to go and feed my sheep. Go and tend my lambs. And in this exchange, Peter is also told by Jesus the kind of death that he was going to die to glorify God, which is going to be a painful death, a difficult death. And Jesus follows that news with a simple invitation to Peter, follow me. With his marching orders in hand, Peter then looked to his friend and his fellow disciple, John. And as John records it in John chapter 21, when Peter saw him, John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So Jesus has just told Peter what's going to happen to him. And now Peter wants to know, well, what about John? And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers, John says, that his disciple was not to die. But Jesus didn't say to him that he was not to die, only if it is my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you? That's an account of Jesus inviting a disciple to follow him into some admittedly guaranteed tough territory speaking plainly, as Jesus often did, about the cost, the price of discipleship. That if you want to follow him, you may very well lose a great deal. Peter, in fact, you will lose your very life. That's what it's going to mean to be faithful. So Jesus tells Peter this. And then when Peter loses a little bit of focus, which if you're familiar with him at all, you know that he's probably our ADD disciple. 
And he asks a common question. What about him? Have you ever asked that question? Yeah. Mom says, hey, I want you to do that. And you say, what about her? What about him? What has to happen there? And Jesus says, that's not your concern. You might be wondering what this has to do at all with the subject at hand today, which is the biblical wife. But listen, God calls a person to a role. God has designed that role. He has created it. He knows everything about it. It might be a costly role. It most certainly will involve personal sacrifice. You understand that, beloved. You cannot follow Jesus without sacrifice. He said that. If you want to follow me, what are you supposed to do? Take up your cross. Take up this object of derision. Be crucified. Deny yourself and follow me. It's going to be costly to follow Jesus. The invitation of God is to follow him in the role that he has prepared for you. What he has for others in different roles and how they will fare is not our immediate concern. And it certainly shouldn't be a distraction. What we have in common is what we are called, each of us, to do, which is to obey. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Our obedience is a measure of our love for Jesus, and our disobedience is a measure of our love for something or someone other than Jesus, or more than Jesus. In marriage, God has designed the roles of husband and wife, and the biblical spouse will be concerned about being faithful to his or her role in order to please God, in order to glorify God, which is our purpose for being here in the earth. And the reality, of course, is that we sometimes falter in our responsibilities. We balk at doing what God says. On the one hand, that's because we're human, that we're sinners, and we don't like to follow rules. And on the other, it's because we're sometimes more concerned about how others are behaving than how we are. In essence, we say to God, I know this is what you want me to do. I know this is how you want me to be. But what about him? He's not living up to his part. He's not doing his job. What about her? She's not holding up her end. What are you going to do with her? What do you suppose God is saying to us when we talk to him that way? as if we were a te teenager just told to wash the dishes and our sister hasn't washed them in two weeks. Well, it's easier and more fulfilling to be a biblical wife to a biblical husband, to be a biblical husband to a biblical wife. And that is our hope in this series, A Biblical Home, that in our families, each member would embrace the wisdom of God for him or her in the sacred position they occupy. The key to being a biblical spouse a biblical wife in the context of today's message is obedience to God. A heart's desire to fulfill the role he designed for you. A heart's desire to want more than anything to obey and please God more than yourself so that he can be honored, so that he can be glorified in your life. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word this morning knowing that we don't know. In fact, we are very easily deceived. Even what we think we know, we may not truly know, or it may not at least be pr proper or correct or right. 
And so, Lord, we do come to you with humility, asking you to inform us of what is right and true, helping, asking you to help us put outside of our minds those things which are not right and which are not true. Form yourself in us and fill our hearts and minds with your wisdom. Oh, Father, you have made us. You know us intimately. You know how we are to be. You know how we function best. And we cast ourselves on your mercy as we look to your word for the wisdom we desperately need. Amen. So we pick up today where we left off last Sunday considering the subject of submission, what some people call an incendiary word or concept of submission, why it can be such a difficult concept. Last week we noted three causes for what I would call submission hesitancy, our natural bent to resist authority, our misunderstanding of the purpose of authority, and our misunderstanding of the biblical concept of authority. Today we'll explore causes four and five, and then we'll attempt to clarify the specific command for wives that is found in Ephesians 5.22, that a wife submit to her husband. Potential fourth cause for submission hesitancy is that we equate authority with worth and importance. We equate authority or headship with worth and importance. So we live in and we are catechized daily by a world that equates authority proportionately with value. So let me give you an example. It's football season. Hallelujah. <laughs> and the quarterback, the leader, is invariably more important, right? Or at least much more the story than the offensive lineman who keeps him on his feet. The CEOs and the executives in this world, at least some that I've worked for, almost always believe themselves to be more important than the workers who actually deliver their multi-digit salaries. The generals in our military are seen as more valuable than the privates, than the soldiers in the trenches and on the front lines. You get the point. In a world where authority translates to importance, the higher up you go, the more in charge you are, the more important you are. If a wife submits to her husband, does that mean that she is admitting to being, to consenting to being less valuable than him? Less important as a person than him? And society, the society we live in may say yes, but the scripture says no. The Bible teaches us that the basis of a person's value is not the role that person fulfills, but that she or he is made in the image of God. That's where we get our worth. Everyone, regardless of function, performance, productivity, everyone is equally valuable. Everyone is equally precious in the eyes of God. This is a spiritual equality. And we find it in Galatians 3.28. That's what Galatians 3.28 is about, right? That's a verse that some say nullifies God-given roles and distinctions. But that's not what it's teaching. Genesis 3.28 says this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. The apostle is not abolishing roles here. He's not asking to turn a blind eye to obvious biological or physical distinctives. He is establishing spiritual equality in Christ. 
decidedly in those areas where there had been an assumed and even accepted inequality. And in our country, we understand that assumed and even accepted inequality. We don't have to go back too far to the horrors of slavery where there was in many places an accepted and assumed inequality based on an ethnic racial distinction. Jesus is saying, no, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish. It doesn't matter if you're Greek. It doesn't matter if you're a servant. It doesn't matter if you're a free man. It doesn't matter if you're a man. It doesn't matter if you're a woman. You're all one in Christ. You're all valuable. You're all equally of worth. The Christian faith is sometimes accused of perpetuating inequality between the genders and being even oppressive on this issue of women's worth. And yet Jesus, I hope you know, was a revolutionary in this matter. And his teaching and his conduct towards women and children in a patriarchal culture proved and championed their equality of value. If you think that Christianity oppresses women, please read the story of Jesus. And note how many interactions he has with women and how many close friendships he has with women. And, and if you think the Apostle Paul is oppressive toward women, please read his epistles and note how many times he references his fellow workers in Christ, the women. Or how he gave Phoebe the letter of Romans and said, here, go deliver this thing. Phoebe, a deacon. So, see, there are ideas out there, and I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but I don't think that we're all so well informed as we think because we form our ideas from our memes and from our peeps. And if our peeps think something and they, they put it out in a meme, we will be like, I don't know if that's true, but I like these people, so it must be. And there it is with the attacks on Jesus and the attacks on the Apostle Paul I have a friend who studies comparative religions, and yet I don't think he's read the Bible. But if you ask him, he would say he knows a lot about comparative religions. And I'm just saying Christianity's getting a bad rap. Jesus was judged, and he was criticized for lots of things, right? For allowing a certain type of woman in particular to anoint his feet one time. If you knew what kind of a woman this was, you wouldn't let her. And what's Jesus saying? Hey, listen, she gets this more than you do, Pharisee. She understands better than you. Jesus' own disciples were astonished when they went to get some food and, and they left him lingering that he ended up talking with a Samaritan woman. You and I will read that in John chapter 4 and go, that's, oh, that's a big deal. Yeah, he was hanging out by the well and along came a woman. It's a Samaritan. It's a race that the Jewish people didn't want anything to do with. And it's a woman. And a Jewish man is not supposed to stand there and talk to a woman, much less a Samaritan woman at this well. And what does Jesus do? He not only stands there and talks with her, he speaks into her life. He tells him that he's the water of life, the living water. And she gets saved. And she becomes our first missionary. That's what happens. You remember there was a time when, well, there was more than one time, but the scripture teaches about Jesus sort of being deluged with babies. He's trying to minister, and people are bringing in babies. Oh, just touch them. Just touch them, Jesus. They're going to be good. And his disciples were like, we don't have time for all these little kids. 
And they forbade the parents, don't bring the babies to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Suffer not the little children to come unto me. Don't you stop them. Don't you stop the kids from coming to me. It's better as someone have a millstone hung around their neck and be cast in the deepest sea than you to cause one of these little ones to sin. Let them come to me. Well, wait a minute. The kids didn't have authority. They didn't have status. They didn't have standing. The children really were to be seen and not heard or maybe not even seen in that culture in some forums. What does Jesus do? He changes it all. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus teaches. When you've heard that term, you know, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, it's, it's true. We're all equally guilty of sin. But we're all equally loved by God. And we're all equal in value and in worth. Jesus affirmed the inherent equal value of everyone, no matter what position in society they held, no matter what rung of society's ladder they found themselves standing on, and so should we. And we mustn't rate the biblical roles of the home, husband, wife, child, servant, that we read about in Ephesians 5. We mustn't rate the lanes that God in his providence and wisdom in his word has carved out for each one of us in this world with a non-biblical value system that says the one who leads is the most important. Kent Hughes, in his comments on this passage, writes, Ephesians uh, presents men and women in an ordered equality in which there is no superiority or inferiority, simply different roles. Different roles. Roles are important. And John Howard Yoder has said this, equality of worth is not equality of role. So one's submission is not a reflection on his or her value as a human and a child of God. Well, we've talked a lot about submission, haven't really defined it. What does it mean to submit? What does it mean specifically for a wife to submit to her husband as we read Ephesians 5.22? The Greek word translated submit means to subordinate, reflexively to obey. That that's, uh, used to be the traditional marriage vows, to obey. And some people are like, I'm not going to do that. Right? Well, actually, that's honest. <laughs> You're probably not. But maybe you ought to think about it because it's scriptural. I'm going to clarify this in a minute, so don't panic. <laughs> Submit means to subordinate, to obey, to be under obedience, to put under, subdue under, submit oneself unto. The word translated submit in Ephesians, same word we read in James 4, 7. We're not going to have any trouble with this one. It says, since God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, submit yourselves therefore to God. You know, because God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, put yourself under God. Make, it, make, make God important to you. Submission as it is commanded here in James and in Ephesians 5.22 is the voluntary placing of oneself under the authority of another. It is the voluntary placing of oneself under the authority of another. It's a choice that one makes. It's the position a Christian woman is willing to take when she says, I do, presumably because she trusts in God's order and understanding that his would be greater than hers. So first, this submission is a choice made from a position of strength and not weakness. It is a volitional, voluntary act. It is a decision to obey. It is not helpless resignation to someone with more strength or power. 
It is the willful choice of a wife, a choice she makes to place herself under the authority of her husband. It is the practical application of the instruction that concludes chapter 5 in Ephesians that a wife respect her husband. So submission is first a choice. Second, this submission is limited. It is not unconditional, okay? It is limited in at least a couple of ways. First, it is limited in scope. As we read the scripture, it says, wives submit to your own husbands. So wives submit to their own husbands, not someone else's. The Bible recognizes male headship in the home and by Holy Spirit appointed office, male headship in the church. But this verse is not a commentary on, it's not a limitation, for instance, on the authority of women in society. It is, not, it is not a limitation of the authority of women in the workplace. It can actually envision a scenario where a husband and a wife work together and the wife is in a position of authority and the husband follows that in the workplace. And I'm guessing that the conversation they have at work is a little different than the conversation they have at home because at home it switches up. It is limited in scope, therefore, the submission. It is limited by scripture. A wife's submission is not mindless, slavish obedience. Isn't that where we go when we hear the idea of submit? Oh, great. Now I have to do everything you tell me, even if it's stupid. Right? That's where we go. But verse 24 tells a wife to submit in everything. What it means is submit in everything that's consistent. Listen, this is so important. Consistent with everything about the saving, sanctifying, serving husband who's following the example of Jesus. That's what it means when it says to submit in everything, submit in everything that's consistent with the saving, sanctifying, serving of the husband who's following the example of Jesus. The Bible teaches us to submit to the authority over us, but it doesn't say that anyone should obey sinful demands. A wife is never obligated to obey her husband who wants her to sin, who wants her to be complicit in any sin. And John Stott says it well. He says the husband's headship can never command what God forbids or forbid what God commands. And that leads us to a natural query. What about ungodly headship? What if the husband is selfish? What if the husband is immoral and he's not saved? Well, in 1 Peter, we read this in the matter of an unbelieving husband. The apostle Peter wrote this. This in the context of his readers' conversion from ungodliness, right? It's important to have the context. So in the context of the readers' conversion from ungodliness to godliness, we raise this issue. What if I have an ungodly husband who's really selfish or really immoral? What do I do with him? Peter says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the context conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. What Peter's saying is, listen, you were ungodly once and you turned to Jesus. So maybe if you can hang in there, your conduct and your example will help to win your husband to Jesus. That's the hope that Peter's holding out here, that a wife's faith will rub off on and eventually win over her unbelieving spouse. So believing wives with unbelieving husbands who, who cannot, because they are unbelieving, provide godly leadership. He says, live out your faith respectfully and live out your faith robustly. 
We notice that Peter emphasizes conduct over words as the compelling factor. In other words, I mean, if I can put it very plainly, ladies, if you have an unbelieving husband, I promise you, you will not nag him into the kingdom. <laughs> it ain't happening. You're not nagging him into the kingdom. If you nag him, he will resist you. But if you love him the way Jesus loves you, and if you respect him, even, even when you don't always agree with him, you still will respect him. You have a chance. So Peter's saying, if you can stay with this guy, and we might qualify that, if you're, because I think you have to in today's world, and I wish I had a little more time to go into this, so if I don't get this quite right, give me some grace. But if you are not being physically abused, if he has not been unfaithful or is being unfaithful, if he has not abandoned you for some addiction and he's willing to stay with you, stay with him and try to win him to the Lord. I think that's what Peter is saying. What if the husband is a believer but he's still acting badly because not all of us Christians get it right all the time, do we? We, re we really don't. What does faithfulness to God look like in this scenario? Well, listen, wives, you have every right and even a responsibility as a fellow heir to question and challenge and seek to understand and where necessary correct the ungodly behavior of your husband. That's not insubordination. That's not blasphemy. That's not wrong. I don't think there's an honest spouse in here who wouldn't admit that the husband, the wife, is probably the primary sanctifying factor in their life. That God has knit us together in such a way that we need each other to hold each other to account and to help us be spurred on to holiness. That's what's missing in relationships where one is a believer and one isn't. So, wives, if you see your husband acting in ways that are unscriptural, that are unbiblical, you have a right scripturally to, to admonish your husband, to try to change your husband, at least to seek to understand it. There's nothing wrong with that. You know where it goes off the rails? It goes off the rails with how you do it. That's where you lose it, right? And that's where we all lose it. That's when we stop communicating, start squawking, fall into our old ruts. You can question your husband. You can call him out. You just have to do it. As Ephesians tells us, speak the truth to one another. What's the qualifier there in Ephesians 4? You remember? In love. That's the qualifier. You've got to love him. You've got to care for him. You've got to, want his, you've got to genuinely want his best. You've got to stop wanting just to win the argument. You've got to want what is right and best for him. But you can do it. You absolutely can confront sin in your mate, and you ought to, because that is what it means to be a true helpmate. So submission doesn't imply that a wife is required to just take it when her husband is falling short of what the word instructs him to do. But again, I think it's attitude and timing that are going to carry the day in terms of confronting. Submission is a choice. Submission is limited. And third, submission is worship. Wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Okay, so we, 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 have a, we don't want to get confused here either. As to the Lord. This is not saying that your husband is on par with the Lord. 
I know some of you think he is. I wish, I wish more of us thought our husbands were that close to Jesus. But your husband's not Jesus. Some of you are actually old enough to remember the 1988 vice presidential debate. Where one of, one of the, and this is, I don't care what your politics are, this isn't political. This was just one of the greatest lines ever that I've ever heard delivered politically, and I literally heard it. Perhaps the most memorable put-down ever, delivered by then-Vice President hopeful Lloyd Benson, another name that has disappeared to relative obscurity, to his opponent, Dan Quayle. Benson was loaded for bear. His people had prepared him well. I'm sure he was ready to pull the trigger because he knew that Quayle was going to give him this opportunity and he was going to equate his youthfulness, which some held against him, with that of former President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And Benson pounced on that. And he said, I knew Jack Kennedy and Senator you are no Jack Kennedy. Oh, it's a great line. <laughs> Ladies, if your husband ever puts him in the self in the place of Jesus, you would be right to say, Honey, I know Jesus, and you are no Jesus. For a wife to submit to her husband as to the Lord is to submit to him for the sake of the Lord. That's worship. We declare the worth of God in our lives by doing what God says to do. We display our love for Jesus by obedience to his commands. The message paraphrase puts this verse this way. It says, wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. Biblical submission, then, is a specific choice it is an act of worship. It is an act of obedience with a specific purpose in mind, especially in the marriage relationship. Okay, so this leads us to a fifth and for today a final possible reason for struggling with submission in the marital relationship. And that is this, that we often misunderstand the purpose of marriage. It is probably fair to say most people who get married, even within the church, are not taught, do not know, have not read, whatever the reason, that marriage is about much more than them individually, even more than them as a couple, that marriage is designed by God to image the gospel. Did you know that when you got married? You know what I thought? I thought, that is a beautiful woman. And I would like to spend my life with her. And this is going to be so good for me. And I'm sure she was, you know, equally enamored and you know, spent her life with me. Dating's just a lie anyway. Put your best foot forward. Do your best. Trick them and get them, right? That's what it is. No. It's kind of how we think about it sometimes. But we do, right? We think about what's good for me or what I want in the moment or what I think is best. But who, who among us, even in the church, has been taught, friend, your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is about him. 
And the way you conduct your marriage in front of everybody, in front of your family, in front of your friends, in front of your church, in front of your workmates, is speaking to the truth and the power of the gospel. This is the rationale for submission that you find in Ephesians 5, 23 and 24. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. A husband and a wife display the relationship of Jesus and the church. That's how God has designed it. And so Rebecca McLaughlin writes in this book I've been reading recently called Secular Creed. And I, I recommend it if you're looking for a Christian perspective on, on things like uh, transgenderism and feminism and abortion and uh, gay rights and Black Lives Matter. Secular Creed is a good, is a good easy, short read. She writes this, as we have seen, the biblical creation stories and the life and teachings of Jesus present men and women as equally precious in God's eyes. Many think this edifice was undermined when Paul called wives to submit to their husbands, but far from asserting male superiority, Paul calls husbands to sacrifice for their wives, giving themselves up like Christ on the cross. If we make husbands and wives interchangeable, we lose the gospel message that marriage is designed to preach. And we do violence to the word of life. I don't think anybody who's made the roles interchangeable intentionally or purposely thought that let me mess up the gospel. Right? None of us who do that have that in mind. We don't have that malicious intent. But it really doesn't matter what our intent is. If we understand what God's design is, this is the reality when we don't do it the way he tells us to. If we make husbands and wives interchangeable, we do violence to God's word. If we abdicate or will not assume the roles and positions God has ordained for us, we distort the gospel. Can you imagine a church that does not submit to Jesus as its head? It may do some good things, but it will miss out on many, many more. Similarly, a marriage where a wife refuses to follow the lead of her husband isn't necessarily doomed to misery. People live this way everywhere, all over the place. But listen, just because it's not doomed to misery, it will always be less than it could be. When we don't follow God's will, it's always less. We settle for less. So quickly, what can we do? How can we conform to God's word in this area of submission? To start, we can turn around the problems that we've identified. If we confess our natural bent to resist authority, then we can pray to God for his supernatural strength to help us abide by authority. If we misunderstand the purpose of authority, then we can read what scripture says about it and truly come to see that is to have our minds renewed on the matter that the authorities. Structures that God has set up for us are for our good and for our joy and for our flourishing and for our thriving. If we misunderstand the biblical concept of authority, we can study the life of Jesus who shows us in word and deed that authority is not power. Authority is responsibility. That any power one has is to be wielded in service to God 
and to others, if we let the reality of historical abuses, even some that you have personally suffered, nullify God's word on this or justify laying aside God's principles altogether, then we can take note of what's happening. It's an understandable, if you have been hurt by somebody who has abused his authority, by a husband who has abused his authority, then take note of what I think is an understandable need for self-protection and pray to the Lord for the trust and the wisdom that you need to discern and do what is right. Because we have this thing, right? We don't like get bit by the same dog twice. But the gospel tells us we can trust God. That's a complex thing. Pray and trust the Lord. If we have bought into the world's value system that equates authority with importance, we must again seek to have our minds transformed not conform to the pattern of this world, and we should be informed by what the Word of God actually says about how in Jesus these earthly markers of importance and inequality are done away with. Let the Bible inform our minds. And if we have missed the point of marriage, well, now we know. This relationship is not just a way for a husband or a wife to be fulfilled. We surely hope that happens. We want that to happen. In this church, we'll do anything we can to make that happen. We value marriage. And we know that it will happen. And it's absolutely most likely to happen when the relationship of the husband and the wife reflects the gospel. When a husband loves his wife as Jesus loves the church, and a wife willingly follows him as the church follows Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for your wisdom. It surely is different than what we're used to hearing, even what we're often thinking. And yet your words are the words of life. They lead to life and they lead to joy and they, and they lead to good things. Thank you for sharing them with us. Lord, help us to have the courage to take them to heart, to change where we need to change to let you by your Holy Spirit mold us into the people you want us to be. And thank you, Father, for the reminder from your word that our marriages are to reflect the gospel, and we pray uh, for this church to, to be equipping husbands and wives to live into that truth, and for our husbands and wives to share the gospel just in the way that they relate with one another. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>